We are now approaching Deansgate Castlefield, where you can change for national rail and free buses around the city centre. The Metrolink is rammed this time of year. City commuters collide with a spike of people travelling to Manchester's Christmas markets. When it works, it's fine, if a little cramped. When it doesn't, it really doesn't. Like last week, when a tram jumped the tracks near St Peter's Square. It was the second tram in as many months to derail in the city centre. So what's going on at Manchester's Metrolink? This is the Manchester Weekly from the Mill. Hello there and welcome to this week's episode of the Manchester Weekly from the Mill with me, Daryl Morris. And in Yoshi's absence this week, Jack Dalhanty of the Mill. Hello, Jack. Hello. How are you? I'm fine, thank you. It's been a while since I've been on this, I think. It, it has been a little while, actually. Yeah, it has too long. Oh, well, a couple of weeks ago, the Manchester Arena uh, inquiry, we chatted to you about that, didn't Still we? Still counts as too long for me. Oh, no, Does wait, and, the conf- and we did confidentials as well, so that was actually not that long. It was about a fortnight ago, wasn't it? Yeah. Basically, you're never off. No, uh, exactly. it's, <laughs> it's the conclusion we can draw from that. Yep. Um, uh, we've got lots to get into this week. Uh, Jack, we're going to be hearing from somebody who you wrote a profile of mm-hmm. in The Mill this weekend. Subscribers to The Mill uh, will have seen a profile of BBC Radio Manchester's new breakfast show presenter, Anna Jameson. Yes, that's right. I spent two days down in the studio, which is just down the road from here, isn't it? The key house. Nice early get-ups, for the first day at least. The second day I got a slightly later call-in. But um, yeah, I really enjoyed it. It was really fun to spend time there and, and see how all that works. And obviously Anna's lovely as well, so it was nice to be able to um, write about her. And you've also been talking a lot about accents this week, and so we're going we're gonna to jam these two stories together. Yes. And we're going to talk about accents with Anna Jameson mm. from BBC Radio Manchester, who has very much got an accent. Uh, has very much got and, an accent. And that was kind of like central to, 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 to the conversation you were having with her, that she had felt at some point in her life like her accent was yeah. something that held her back. Uh, yeah. Unbeknownst to her, it became a central part of <laughs> Yeah. Only afterwards did she realise, hang on, I thought that was just a mirror side, but no, <laughs> clung on to it. Um, you've, also, you've also got your own interesting stories to tell, and actually so have I about accents as well. Both you and I have got some interesting stories to tell about changing our accents. Yeah. Uh, and you've been also speaking to somebody who is an expert in accents this week. So we'll get into all of that uh, before the end of this edition of the Manchester Weekly. Really, really interesting chat with Anna coming up. Firstly, let's yes. start with something a little bit more practical. Uh-huh. Uh, for many people, their route through the city, Metrolink. Commuters have been facing really big delays, Jack, this last couple of weeks or so because of several problems across Metrolink in the last uh, few months. Specifically last week, a tram that jumped the track at St. Peter's Square, that caused havoc. It's the second train in as many months to derail in the city centre. So we're asking some questions about that, right, Jack? Yes, we have been. And what we've been told by an insider with kind of direct, I say kind of, no, it is, direct knowledge of Metrolink's sort of track management operation is that the track management operation is, and I quote, poorly managed and poorly organised, and it leaves some bits of the track kind of over-maintained and other bits not really checked as much as they should be. And what we've been told is that there's kind of a lack of accountability in managing these tracks because of the number of subcontractors involved in the network. And it's mixed with a few other things, like managers who are, quote, scared of a really heavily uh, unionised workforce. And again, here is a quote, a situation where track teams were scheduling in less work than they could do and also claiming overtime, which is what the sources told us, and they went on to say there's no good performance management. Um, When we approached Daniel Vaughan, who is Transport for Greater Manchester's head of Metrolink, he told us that strict maintenance requirements and performance targets are managed closely as part of this contract to ensure that the very highest standards are upheld. These are serious allegations and we will be investigating them with the operator. So the operator in question 
is key <laughs> I hate saying this name because I always get it wrong <laughs> Keolis Ami Metrolink which is a joint venture between essentially two private companies that specialize in sort of light rail operation one called Keolis one called Ami and it was awarded to them by Transport for Greater Manchester in 2017 for an initial seven years with some possible extensions the fullest it could go up to is 11 years and if that was to go all the way to those 11 years, the contract would be worth about $647.5 million. So it was wow. a very big contract, mm. which, you know, as Vaughan um, alludes to, it's, there are serious allegations for a contract of this size to say that things are being um, poorly managed and poorly organised. This sort of insight into the, perhaps the culture at Metrolink and a couple of these incidents, they come at a really quite a bad time for Metrolink, don't they? Correct. I mean, it's one of the service's busiest times at the moment for the, you know, for trams to be jumping tracks to derailments in as many months. Mm -hmm. There's also, you know, since doing that, so we published this piece uh, covering this kind of thing on Monday. I've had multiple members reach out to me with like pictures of broken tram lines and talking about their own struggle in trying to get in and out of work and how they've got new jobs and it's just made things difficult. So, yeah, it is is a bad time. Plus, you know, if you take in the kind of general political context, so obviously you have the B network, Andy Burnham's really drilling home, trying to connect all of these different transport systems. And we know from comments that he made in 2019 that the expansion of Metrolink into other boroughs like Wigan, Stockport and Bolton isn't moving as quick as he would like it to be. So, again, it's just kind of a... As you say, a bit of a bad time. Okay, and it's also, uh, as we record, Jack, the day that Andy Burnham is meeting the Secretary of State for Transport. Oh boy, to be a fly. I mean, I'm I'm sure that um, uh, in the fullness and time, maybe as you're listening to this podcast, you've got an insight into what's happened in that meeting, but to be a fly on the wall there, there's Mm -hmm. lots and lots to say. Andy Burnham's also meeting the Secretary of State for, for Transport with a group of mayors mm. from across the north. Uh, the uh, the mayor of the North Tyne mayor, uh, Jamie Driscoll, hasn't been able to make the meeting because he couldn't trust the trains. Mm. And Tracy Brabin, who is, of course, the mayor for West Yorkshire, was on her way to that meeting today and her train from Leeds to Manchester was cancelled. So that just gives you a bit of a sense. Or, you know, Within this story, there is the ludicrous proposition that mayors trying to get to Manchester to talk about transport are being let down the tra- by the transport that's getting them there. What are we expecting from that meeting, Jack? What are the mayors going to be asking? Well, in all the pieces I've seen, they're asking for action, which is brilliantly vague. <laughs> but it, I think it speaks to the kind of apathy that they feel Transpennine Express and Avanti, who are the kind of the main companies that are billed with destroying or, or you know, causing the causing havoc in in northern trains it kind of speaks to the apathy that they feel these two companies are approaching this issue with and you know the same can be said for for government as you were talking about driscoll there the north time mayor he told the guardian that the first step to recovery is admitting you have a problem and i haven't heard the government admit yet that the rail infrastructure is in the state that it is is creaking in his words so i think what they're really looking for from what i can tell is acknowledgement that this is a huge problem for so many people in the region at the moment. And there's been uh, a plethora of stories recently, many written by The Guardian's Helen Pidd, which cover this sort of thing, who, you know, she's really been on this constantly. You know, she's been speaking to people who've kind of lost their jobs because of the disruption, who have had, you know, huge shame put on relationships and who've spent thousands on tickets that have ultimately ultimately ended up being diverted from the locations that they originally bought them for, Mm. which is, you know, it does give you a sense of 
this sort of human effect is happening on individual people as well. Mm, yeah. There's been some really interesting stuff, Jack, about the, about, uh, obviously that's, you know, Avanti is one thing and we know the problems with Avanti. Uh, they've been kind of outlined and some of those are issues around and Avanti will point to people working to rule. There's also been strikes as well. Mm. The, the issues on Avanti are quite well documented. What's perhaps less well known, Jack, is what's going on on Transpennine Express and Northern Rail, mm. which is, you know, what sort of was Northern Rail essentially. They are cancelling services at an astonishing rate, but there's a discrepancy, isn't there, mm. between them cancelling them and them reporting them. Yeah. They are not being reported as cancellations, even though they are cancellations. What's going on there? Yeah, so, like, for example, today, as we record this, so Wednesday the 30th, Helen Pitt again has put the stats on, on Twitter that's, that TransPennine have cancelled 60 trains today. And I think that was 13 of which are partial cancellations. So the other 47 are complete cancellations. And what she reported on was a kind of loophole whereby if TransPennine Express cancel a train before 10 p.m., the day before the train was meant to run, they don't have to report it as a cancellation um, to the government body that basically tracks this sort of stuff. So the Guardian got hold of figures that showed that where TransPennine Express were cancelling between 20 and 30% of trains, they could they would end up reporting more like 5 to 11% cancellation rates on those trains. So it's... um, yeah, it's a huge thing, actually. It's a big scoop. It is. Astonishing. Goodness me. Okay, we'll keep an eye on that story, of course, and uh, some good work from Helen Pidd there from mm. The Guardian, some really solid journalism from her. Okay, from trains and transport to accents. Mm. We're really ticking all of the boxes that a northern podcast uh, has <laughs> <Literally>. to tick <laughs> today, uh, Jack. You've written a really interesting piece, Jack, uh, where you spent some time with Anna Jameson, who is the new-ish presenter of BBC Radio Manchester's Breakfast Show. She's covering Michelle Dignan, who's also a northerner, during her maternity leave. She's been talking about Radio Manchester for a while, Anna Jameson, but she's now got that big slot and you spent a bit of time with her and talked about her accent. Yes, that's right. So I spent, as as I was saying earlier, two days sort of during that recording period, the four-hour show, and a little bit of time before and after it um, with Anna while she was doing a job, basically, and I just sort of sat there and watched uh, in that odd way that you get to sometimes when you're a journalist, and I went out and sat with the producers and, and, and kind of watched how all of it fits together and it was really interesting and she was a really interesting person to um, speak to and she has a really interesting story as well. She's brilliant Anna, I've got a lot of time for her and I'm very, very pleased to say that Anna Jameson joins us on the Mill podcast now. Anna, hi. Hi. How are you? Good, thank you for having me. It's a real privilege. Welcome to the Mill podcast. Not your first broadcast of the day. No, it's not. I've been up since half four I slept in this morning. And so what time do you get up normally? Well, half past three, first alarm goes off, 20 to four, then 10 to four, then four. It's a good job I'm single. Right. That's all I'm saying. Yeah. So then you're, <laughs> and then you're, you get in, you, you, your commuting is kind of like quite long as well, isn't it? Is that right? Not it, really. I live, I'm, I live in Bury. So from Bury oh, right, to okay, Salford, then. it's like half an hour. And the roads are clear. Got no, no problems on the M60 at that point. So it's just, it's just a peaceful time. Just have the radio on. Just kind of digest what's going on. News-wise, think about what you wanted in the show. It's it's like good thinking time. You are the new presenter of BBC Radio Manchester's Breakfast Show while Michelle Dignan is on maternity leave. Yes. So it's all you, right? It's your it's your show. You are now the voice of Greater Manchester. I know it's my baby. It's it's weird because it's something that I always kind of I don't know. Since I started presenting, it's something that I kind of thought I'd like to do, and now it's happened. It's. Yeah, it, 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 it is weird and I sometimes get very overwhelmed 
when the Manchester Mill article came out, I felt very overwhelmed because it's weird to have the attention on me when I'm usually the one asking the questions. <laughs> so that's that was really unnerving. But you know, it's it's going really well. It's a dream job, and you know, it's just a real honour to to wake up Greater Manchester as the sun rises and you're waking people up. It's just there's no better feeling, really. How did you get into radio slash the media in the first place? Bit of a long-winded journey. I always kind of knew in the back of my mind that I wanted to do journalism, but I just didn't really know how to go about it. And um, I ended up going into events in London because everything was very, like media-wise, it was very London-centric, wasn't it? Uh, particularly in the mid-naughty. So I kind of felt like I had to go to London and I didn't have the confidence to do journalism so I kind of got into events because it was still a bit performative hated it really disorganized which doesn't bode well for events may I add it's a key <laughs> it's a key thing that you need to have a key quality uh, you know when I was like doing these fancy award ceremonies and like giving people like roast lamb and I don't know so what were you doing raising you... money for them you know and so, so I were just you hosting thought, those events or were you, no, pl- no, you planning I was organizing them, I was organizing them which was, was just chaotic and then um I thought, right, well, I can't be doing this forever. Kind of moved to a talent agency, working there. And I just thought, right, I've kind of come to the end of the road here. If I don't go back now and do a postgraduate uh, degree in journalism, I'll never do it. So I took the plunge and I left my mates in London. And, you know, London is, you know, you think the pavement's made of gold, don't you? But it's not at all. Uh, But I had a great time with my mates. And, you know, it it was a big deal for me then. Um, kind of throwing everything, I don't know, in the bin really and, and starting again and I had to move back with my mum and dad and, you know, go to Preston every day to to study journalism and then I was coming back and I was working in a pub and I was polishing cutlery in the kitchen, you know, at 26, I'm thinking, what the, what the bloody hell are you doing, you know, what, what, what have you done with your life, like why are you here, you had this big career and now you've just jacked it in. And then I thought, I'm going to make this work. And it was a leap of faith. And I was just determined, determined to make it work. And so um, as I was studying, I got a job at Radio Lancashire and uh, it kind of went from there, really. And you, you've talked a bit about how you kind of always felt like having a very northern accent was going to be the thing that held you back in the media. Or perhaps that, it, you know, that, it, that it, you were aware of it and it could have been something that was detrimental rather than an asset. Did you feel like that way? Uh, yeah, I mean, uh, when I when I started doing journalism at, at the course, like absolutely not. But like when I when I was eighteen, I I, I got this um, I got on a course at Leeds Uni, and it was a really well respected English literature and theatre course. It was like three thousand people apply, twenty people get on it. I felt like I had to go, um, and you know, I, again, I had a great time there. But on the course, I remember coming into lectures and into classes, and me opening my mouth, and instantly felt like I was being written off and there was a lot of snobbery I was asked where I was schooled people used to like just laugh I could could feel them like sniggering at me and so instantly I just uh you know if, if I don't like something I just I just won't even try so I completely switched off and it felt like a constant battle and um, when I was at a red brick university that I was constantly trying to fight my my worth you know clearly 
I, yeah, I didn't go to a posh school. I'm from Blackburn, which, you know, I had a lovely upbringing. It's a, it's a working class town generally, but, you know, it was very different to people there. And I just felt like completely dismissed. And when I did get my events job in London, I just had a terrible time. Again, people just completely dismissing me, completely writing me off at work, you know, big bosses thinking that I wasn't up to the job. And so it's just this like constant battle that I had um, just for being me. And this just did nothing for my confidence. So I just kind of felt like I I would never actually make it because I wasn't good enough and I didn't speak in the right way and I didn't have the right background. Did you carry that with you for a while? Have you have you have you actually have you ever got rid of that? Yeah, I've got rid of it now. Uh, Do you feel yeah. completely comfortable? You never feel like like you're a no an imposter or, or you know whatever. Else. I think everyone has a bit of imposter syndrome, don't they? I Apart think from if, yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> well, I think if anyone says that they don't, that they're lying. You always kind of feel in the back of your mind you're going to get caught out if people are going to be truthful. But I'm so m- much more comfortable being me now and. I think that's just by living and working here and I think the landscape of Greater Manchester's changed. It's so dynamic now. There's so many more opportunities. Broadcasting's changed as well, you know. You, you can hear it. Well, you can you can see it when you're watching the telly. It feels like everybody is represented. You know, you're looking at levelling up, you're looking at the Northern Powerhouse and Jack and I discussed this, didn't we? Um, you know, saying that... But, <laughs> It's no longer the London bubble. Like everywhere is more. But like they just want to accept everybody, no matter where they're from, and they want to appeal to everybody. And I think that is reflected in broadcasting. So, you know, I, I will always say that I felt like completely now at ease with who I am, and and that is to be celebrated. And Jack, you obviously spent quite a bit of time with Anna yeah. at BBC Radio. Just firstly, we'll talk about the accent thing in a minute because you've also written some other stuff this week, haven't you, about about accents? Yeah. And about the about the sort of evolution of your accent as well, mm. which is quite interesting. Um, how did you find? Uh, what do you think of Anna? What are you going to say? Like she was a weirdo. We'll, like tell you after. Like yeah, what did you? What do you think of Radio Man? Not job. Um, yeah, no. I, I, no, yeah. I spent loads of time there. Everyone was asking me if I was going to get a job there because I was there so much. Yeah, well, no, I mean, you're I was only there for two days, but I was like. <laughs> there for like 20 hours of two dates no i really enjoyed it uh, although the, the get up is a nightmare though you didn't even get up for six o'clock no I... no i did on the first day yeah you on did Thursday, on the first day right, so i got there at six. quarter to six. Oof, right yeah and then he comes in the next day bleary eyed yeah. eight o'clock start i was like this is a lion <laughs> swanned in on friday <laughs> what, what, did you, what did you make because i know you were there to sort of obviously speak to anna and, and do a profile of anna and and just get a bit of a sense of uh the, the place of bbc radio manchester i guess in the greater manchester media landscape yeah exactly. what was your what was your kind of takeaway from bbc radio manchester and how it's set up and, and and what kind of role it plays well it was interesting the as i put in the piece which i found Mad was obviously key house is like this huge place, like it's five stories of you know a big chunk of the BBC, and you almost imagine BBC Radio Manchester when you listen to it every day as it's being like, well, as someone who sort of understands or knows of the media a bit, you you imagine it as being like its own thing, like uh, its own building almost, and then when you go in, it's in this huge building, it's kind of just like its own slice of this much bigger thing, and that really struck me because it's like wow, it makes you realise how much of the BBC is here now and how much output comes from Media City. So that was interesting. But it was also nice to be able to, when you sat in the studio and you're hearing kind of like Anna talk to Charlie 
and people getting sort of dialed up to come in these callers from like Timberley and all over the all over the region really and you did feel like I wrote in my notebook literally like it feels like public service which was different to what happens more or less all other journalism in a way is it felt as though you were doing something that was actually helping the community in some way it felt like you were giving contributing not to say that journalism doesn't contribute but this felt like it was where people from around the region could come to have a kind of forum to talk to one another even though even though it's kind of via Anna but it's still kind of like yeah that that literally when I wrote that my notebook I underlined it like it felt like public service like there was something being done for the people if that makes sense yeah do you do you Anna do you feel like your accent and the fact that you're f- you know you're from here broadly living in Barry, you know born I suppose and raised in oh, you were, you're from Blackburn aren't Blackburn you? yeah do you feel like that sort of helps you connect with your audience, right? Do you, do you feel that that's a part of the reason that they invest in you? A, a thousand percent, a thousand percent, because I, I used to be a reporter out in the field and, you know, a lot of that would be going up to people that you don't know, talking to people and making that instant connection. And there's that trust there, isn't there? I think people like what they know. <laughs> mm. So that's nice. And it's that relatability. And I think um, people have said to me before, oh, I just feel like I'm, you know, waking up with a mate or having a, like a brew w- w- with my friend and just catching up on the gossip. And it is that kind of informality that people get a lot from. And with that, you can then give more serious news stories, more inf- informative stuff, entertainment. Once you've got that initial trust, and I, and I do think that comes with that relatability, maybe with an accent, I don't know. Um, it, it really it helps. It's a, it's a good foundation. And Jack, you talked about your accent a little bit, haven't you? Mm. You've, you wrote a follow-up piece in the Mill this week about when well, you've been you've you've done a bit of speaking to somebody who's an expert in accents, but you've also been kind of reflecting on your accent and how your accent's changed. Yeah, so I spoke to Rob Drummond a few weeks ago, who ran this Manchester Voices thing at Manchester mm. Metropolitan. He's a sociolinguist who kind of like looked at how diverse accents are in Greater Manchester and also the way that people perceive them within Greater Manchester, if that makes sense. And when I was on the phone to him and we were talking and I told him that I was from Salford and I think it's happened when I said to you that I was from Salford, you were like, you were from Salford. I thought you just lived in Salford and I was yeah. like, no, 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 I am in fact from there. And then I thought about it and I was like, to be fair, I did kind of unlearn that accent mostly because my gran absolutely hated my Salford accent when I was a kid because my gran grew up in like army barracks. So she was taught like proper Queen's English and she's very posh. And me and my sister, when we were growing up, and our, you know, eyes and R's were all over the place, and there was no T's. My grandma was just like, "No, this can't go on." So she very much like put a foot down and was like, "You will pronounce words this way mm. every time that you pronounce a word incorrectly. Doesn't matter if you're in front of your mates. Doesn't matter where you are. Yeah. I will call you up on it and make you feel embarrassed for it." Thanks, Gran. Um, <laughs> so over time, yeah, I kind of like unlearned it, and I was thinking about just how weird that was. And then when I was talking to Rob, he was kind of like, "Well, that's kind of." not a thing anymore over time now with stuff like the as Anna was talking about there the sort of broader representation in broadcasting and all that sort of thing people are much more willing now to uh, really embrace their accents and accentuate them pardon the pun um, and really lean into it instead of trying to hold it back whereas in the past when they were talking to older speakers he said that they did find that people were told like no you can't you know you can't go in a job interview talking with that Bolton accent like you aren't really going to get away with that you're better off trying to pull yourself away from the regional sounds um, because you'll have a better chance of succeeding and stuff like that and that's completely changed now. Do you know that's so funny because like I've got a couple of mates and 
um, they're from Greater Manchester and they go to like drama school or whatever. And I know that when they're in London, <laughs> it, they have a completely mm. different accent. They come back up and it's like, hey up, cocker. Mm. Well, can I get you a pie and some mushy peas? I'm like, you don't talk, you never talked like that before. So like you've, you've lent into it and then doubled over. Like mm. it's like you're rolling around in your accent now. It's, it's people trying to like... Um, I don't know, like, like make up for who they are. It's it's really, mm. really strange. Yeah, it's almost like making up for lost time. Or it's like yeah. I, I wasn't being myself back there. I need to <laughs> catch, mm, up. catch up a bit. That's interesting, isn't it? Yeah. I, my my accent's changed entirely since from from when I was growing up in uh, in Bolton. But you've got like a unique voice, though. I do think. you think so? Yeah. In what in what sense? Well, when you said to me when I first met you, and we've known each other for a while now, that you're from Bolton, I was like, yeah, I can hear it, but it doesn't sound like typical Bolton yeah, yeah. How, how do you say like say you're going to catch the bus now well I'd, I'd catch a buzz right so I go. do do the buzz okay. the, the, the Z's instead of the instead yeah, of the that S, is Bolton I do do that yeah. and I, I, my, my accent's also sort of evolved so two things and you talk about about somebody and, and in your case your, your gran and I guess you Anna kind of like Feeling naturally like your your accent's an asset. I remember, and this isn't even that long ago. I'm only 32, so I haven't. You know, I'm not. It's not like I've been doing this for 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 forever and ever. This will be within the last 10 years. Mm. Um, I remember somebody uh, who was doing some coaching with me, telling me that I wouldn't make it. In fact, two people told me this. Um, one of them saying that I wouldn't make it if it, it, on on hit music radio, which is what I was doing at the time, with such flat vowels. I had very, very flat vowels. I mean, I spoke almost entirely different to how I mm. speak now. Um, and they said they just said that flat out. They said you wouldn't, you will not make it on national hit music radio if you talk like that. And and I should have recoiled in horror and and told him to f off, but I, I didn't. I kind of worked on it. I also lived with, and I think this is also quite interesting, is my ex girlfriend, uh, who's also a radio presenter actually in Manchester, Hattie. She does the she does the afternoon show on yeah. uh, Hits Radio. We we met at BBC Radio Manchester actually. She's from Berkshire. She came up here to study. So she's got a, you know, she's got a southern accent. And living with her for about five or six years, I think, also had a, you know, had a big influence mm-hmm. on me. But I am probably, my accent is probably a, is probably a, a product of living with somebody who was southern, but also media shame. Mm-hmm. My, mm. my accent's probably a product of media shame, of, of feeling like I couldn't. And I'm still very... I'm still northern enough to get messages on when I'm on my radio show saying who's this northern idiot. <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> it's still it's still used against me. Um, <laughs> it, it's still it's still used against me. Um, uh, but but it's interesting. I, I find it very interesting that that. Um, that it that that I've I, and only really kind of recently have I gone. Actually, I should never have ever bowed to that. I don't know why I ever bowed to that. How does Hattie find it being from Berkshire broadcasting in Greater Manchester? Well, she's on a national network. I see. She, she does so the hits radio, which I think you get into in your piece, Jack, yeah. about about the sort of media landscape. Um, uh, it comes from Manchester, but it's a national yeah. radio show. Right, so she's yeah. got the benefit of uh, of that, I guess. Really, okay. and I'm also, you know, my I, so the radio show that I do, Times Radio, is also is also national. So so it matters a lot less that I've got that I, whether I have an accent or not. Mm. It wouldn't necessarily be the asset in the in the way that it is perhaps when I do, you know, when I do stuff on Radio Manchester or the, mm. what, the, the podcast that I do for BBC, the BBC and stuff, or even this really, it's it's less important. 
in in those kind of settings but still you know you talk about you hear it a lot across the media now i mean the idea of somebody being turned away from a radio station because the 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 um, vowels are too flat is something that i was told within the last decade it is unbelievable. You know, on um, BBC Radio 5 Live, their tagline used to be home of breaking news and live sport. Now it's all of the UK. So they've got a real kind of drive now to represent everybody from the UK as well. And you can hear it again. You know, they're becoming more accepting now a national station of regional accents. Mm. Anna, it's been a pleasure to have you on the podcast. Thanks for having me. Thank you for coming. Thank you for, I mean, would you normally nap? Yes, you every nap. day. Do you nap, do you? Oh my gosh, I love a nap. <laughs> I don't, right? I have a blackout blind, I t- and then I've got blackout curtains, so I've got double the blackout. Um, close my door so my housemate can't hear me. And I don't even set an alarm, and then I wake up when I wake up. Do you? That's dangerous, isn't it? Well, no, because it's never like... Well, it's never never be that far. Just like, you know, I've got a good solid... Like, my mum's like, you don't nap, you sleep. (laughs) (laughs) Um, But yeah, I'm going to go home and nap now. So thanks. Good, okay. (laughs) Thank you, Anna. Cheers. And don't forget that you can read... Jack's profile of Anna Jameson in The Mill this week. ManchesterMill.co.uk is where you go to join the now 1,600 and something or other paid subscribers I saw that um, Yoshi so, had hit. Go on, I'll tell you, you right that? now, 1,633. You, you walk around that with written on your hands, do you? I've got a little dashboard. <laughs> no, you've got a dashboard. At all times. That's, that's a live number. A live number. Yeah. live number. Uh, join all of those people who know quality when they see it uh, by subscribing to The Mill. ManchesterMill.co.uk and you can read Anna's piece in full. Okay, a couple of quick hits for you before we go this week. Um, Jack, there's been an update on the uh, situation that we're following closely at Night and Day Cafe in Manchester. Of course, defending themselves against a, sad, a sort of sound order, as it were, mm-hmm. and they've been in court this week. Yep, that's right. They, they had their first day in court yesterday, uh, which was mostly uh, hearing from Jennifer Smithson, who was the daughter of the cafe's founder, Jan Oldenburg, who's kind of this iconic figure in Manchester, and she's now the owner of the, the cafe. And she said she couldn't understand why the council think Night and Day have done anything wrong. She thought they would be proud of them rather than imposing this um, noise abatement order. But the noise abatement order was put in after residents of a neighbouring block uh, made complaints about sound issues. A neighbouring block that, as happens, was, according to um, the hearing, not quite properly sound insulated when the council approved it to be turned into flats in 2000. It used to be a warehouse. An acoustic expert at the hearing said that the council's planning department should have done more to prevent this issue, which is the inadequate sound insulation, after the development was approved in 2000. Okay, we'll return to that for sure, whether we like it or not. Paul Price has been speaking this week, uh, Jack. He is somebody who you may know uh, who survived the arena attack. Uh, He spoke to BBC Breakfast this week, didn't he, Jack? What was his name? Well, yeah, he is saying something that a lot of survivors of the attack have, have kind of spoken about, which was feeling, um, to quote his words, abandoned and lost immediately after the attack, from which he did suffer really catastrophic injuries, including the losing the function of one of his legs. And he's called for a survivor's hub whereby basically survivors of these kinds of attacks will receive instantaneous and kind of additional support. It's something that Martin Hett's mum, Fegan Murray's talked about before. She's called it a survivor's charter and it'd be something that kind of offers enhanced access to mental health support um, to the victims and their families and that kind of thing. And also like help with media and stuff because they almost have like when I was speaking to Fegan a few months ago now for the fifth anniversary, she was talking about how there was no real preparation for how 
your life would change in that situation and you know as if there isn't enough you know in that catastrophe to deal with there's also this whole new world that you've been thrust into of like people want to speak to you for the media and those kinds of changes where there's just not support for them in that way at the moment yeah it's a very good point and uh, some strikes as well jack well strikes across the board really yeah. in all sorts of different places uh there's, there's a couple of, where are we at with sixth form colleges they are off this week are they or a couple of days at it's least. today today right. um so that's 15 sixth form colleges are affected by the strikes across greater manchester you can find that online which ones are being affected but i presume because they're happening today and this is being published tomorrow you will have already known and also half of england's ambulance crews including ambulance crews in the northwest have voted to take strike action over pay Rules do mean that, you know, emergency health care still has to be provided, so those strikes are kind of limited, um, thankfully. But got, I think it speaks to the kind of dissatisfaction in the health service at the moment. It's just weeks after nurses, cleaners and other hospital t- staff were balloted as well on the same grounds of pay disputes. So. Um, yes, indeed. And Nigel Farage has embarrassed himself in public, hasn't yes, he? Yes, he has. Uh, 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 Jack, uh, about something, some comments that he's made about Manchester in the last day or so. Yeah, I think he was going off, well, I mean, I think he thought he was going off the census, but he got it wrong in saying that we are now minority white population. Which in Manchester. You, in Manchester, yeah. So if you, he also talked about Birmingham and a few other cities, I think. But if you actually look at the census, we, in Manchester, we are 56.8% of us um, identify as white. So that's wrong. Right. So not only is it something of a dog whistle, but it's also just factually inaccurate as well. Mm. Um, okay. Um, let's have a look at what's going on ahead. Take us into the Mill Newsroom, Jack. Some stories that you're working on at the moment, my friend. Uh, yeah. So this weekend, we've actually got a piece coming from a longtime miller. So not from sort of within the office, but from without. It's uh, Mike Emmerich. He used to be a policy advisor at Number 10. And he had a really big role in getting devolution of powers to Greater Manchester over the line back in like 2014 slash 15. And his piece this weekend will look at what it would look like if we took levelling up and regional inequality seriously. So if you're into levelling up and you're into all of those south-north disparities, it would be a really good read. Excellent. Okay, and we like to give you some stuff to do as well over the weekend. Just a heads up, by the way, you will not find tickets to this uh, unless you've got them already, in which case, congratulations. How the hell have you managed that? Peter Kay uh, is on. He starts his big epic run of shows that lasts until, I don't know, like next decade, I think, doesn't it? Mm. (laughs) Like I saw somebody tweet saying that... uh, They'd got some PTK tickets for their daughter's 18th birthday, and she's only just turned 13. Uh, <laughs> so that was quite funny. Anyway, that starts at the Manchester Arena. More of a heads up for traffic, more than anything else. Mm. Um, and if you're looking for something, another comedian, full disclosure, very good friend of mine, but I think she's absolutely brilliant. Hayley Ellis is doing a run of shows this weekend, Sunday at uh, 7.30 and Sunday the 11th, so next week as well, at the... Uh, she's got an invisible man... Uh, is is the name of her show. She did it in Edinburgh. It's on at the Frog and Bucket. Sunday, this weekend, and Sunday, next weekend as well. I couldn't recommend her highly enough. I think she's absolutely brilliant. Yes, and for something that would probably be even funnier than both of those deliberately comedic stand-up shows, you could go and watch this Friday, Andy Burnham and Steve Rotherham have a DJ battle, the Metro (laughs) Mayor DJ battle. I'll be there. Shockingly enough, where is that? Uh, De- uh, Mayfield Depot, right, uh, where the Warehouse Project is. Excellent. Where the creme de la creme of DJs normally play. This time, it will be the preserve of two mares, which is strange. I'll tell you what. Sir Thomas Potter, who was the first mayor of 
Manchester. We're turning his grave, won't see, at what the mayors of today get up to. Goodness me. Yes, you're right. Not very mayoral, is it, I suppose? Um, uh, but a good laugh. That looks like it'll be fun. Also, just one final nod for you as well. It is the 50th anniversary of uh, the last time that we visited the moon. Uh, Andy Saunders, who is a sort of collector of things and, and publisher and journalist, uh, is going to pre- present a small collection of remastered photographs from the final mission, Apollo 17, um, at Jodrell Bank this weekend. It starts this weekend. There's a bigger tour of them, but he's going to be there this weekend, Saturday the 3rd of December, from 1 till 4, signing a book as well with some of those photographs in. So if you're into anything space, really worth a trip to Jodrell Bank this weekend. Um, hey, Jack, thank you. Thank you. Uh, and thank you as well. Don't forget to like and subscribe to this podcast to get news about Greater Manchester in your feed every week. And there's only one other place to subscribe to, and that's The Mill. Manchestermill.co.uk is where you go for more brilliant quality journalism like that direct to your inbox.